Welcome to the Believe and Follow podcast. I'm your host, James Rattazzi. This is the second post in our discussion of sin. This is an important discussion because the Bible frames this as a life or death issue. This is how Moses put it just before the nation of Israel were to enter the promised land. I call heaven and earth to witness against you today that I have set before you life and death, blessing and curse. Therefore, choose life, that you and your offspring may live, loving the Lord your God, obeying his voice, and holding fast to him, for he is your life and length of days, that you may dwell in the land that the Lord swore to your fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob to give them. That's Deuteronomy chapter 30, verses 19 and 20. In the New Testament, the Apostle Paul puts it this way, For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. That's Romans chapter 6, verse 23. It's clear obedience to God's word is life, and God has made his word accessible to us. Let's go back to Moses' words to Israel in the book of Deuteronomy. For this commandment that I command you today is not too hard for you, neither is it far off. It is not in heaven that you should say, Who will ascend to heaven for us and bring it to us, that we may hear it and do it? Neither is it beyond the sea that you should say, Who will go over the sea for us and bring it to us, that we may hear it and do it? But the word is very near you. It is in your mouth and in your heart, so that you can do it. See, I have set before you today life and good, death and evil. If you obey the commandments of the Lord your God that I command you today, by loving the Lord your God, by walking in his ways and by keeping his commandments and his statutes and his rules, then you shall live and multiply. And the Lord your God will bless you in the land that you are entering to take possession of it. But if your heart turns away and you will not hear but are drawn away to worship other gods and serve them, I declare to you today that you shall surely perish. You shall not live long in the land that you are going over the Jordan to enter and possess. That's verses 11 through 18 of Deuteronomy chapter 30. But let's also not forget that as disciples of Jesus Christ, we have it better than the nation of Israel 
did. Remember, Jesus said, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. That's Matthew chapter 11, verses 28 through 30. Here, the invitation of Jesus is gently encouraging us to make the very same choice. He wants us to choose life. Sin is connected with death, and so it is important for us to clearly understand what sin is so we can avoid it and instead choose life. A number of issues were raised in last week's discussion, and the following discussion tackles those issues. Okay, so after listening to Sin Part 1, what are your thoughts? Basically the same. <laughs> so far as when I... when we talked about it. Yeah, so the concept that we've got to settle is this concept that you succinctly state by saying an example is not a command. Because if we're going to figure out what sin is, we first have to have an understanding of what instructions apply to us. Like, how do we get instructions from the Bible? Mm -hmm. So we're both pretty much in agreement that when there's a simple declarative sentence that's just a command, that, then, then we do that. The assignment that I had was to think of some things that we do by example that's not a simple direct command. Okay. Like for instance, we understand, let me ask you what you understand it as first. What do you understand sexual immorality as? See, we have all sorts of verses to tell us that the sexually immoral, amongst other things, list of nasties will not inherit the kingdom of heaven. We can see a direct command that we should not be committing sexual immorality, but now the question is, how do you define sexual immorality? I mean, I think there are... What is sexual immorality, like, chapter and verse? Like, for one, um, part of it would be explained by the stories of, like, daughters sleeping with fathers, you know, from the Old Testament. Right. That was definitely frowned upon by God. Um, so, yeah, there was plenty of Old Testament stories like that and how it didn't go well for them. And we have this New Testament story where a guy's having sex with his father's wife, right? And clearly the Apostle Paul sees that as sexual immorality. We're defining sexual immorality by examples. We don't have a definition. It's an interesting thing because I did work on this some time ago. There's no verse you can point to that says this tells us what sexual immorality is. But there are a number of verses that connect with it that we can, by example, understand what sexual immorality is. There's that verse in 1 Corinthians chapter 7. I think it's verse 9. 
where the Apostle Paul is, he's having that discussion that you referenced the other day about whether it's a good idea to get married or not. But he says, well, you know, maybe you shouldn't get married if you, if you can control yourself. But if you can't control yourself, then you should take a wife. In verse 9, but if they cannot exercise self-control, they should marry. For it's better to marry than to burn with passion. We see from that verse that the Apostle Paul understands that you can't be having sex unless you're married. Using the example of the Apostle Paul's conversation, this is an example thing. And we're making inferences from the text. The inference is very clear, right? And we have other texts also. Is that one helpful to you? Because there's no verse that says, okay, now, if you're not married, you can't have sex. There's no verse that says that. But that's, that's, you're taking right there, you're taking a command that we just don't understand, you know, what it is based on that, in, in that specific command, but then taking other things and adding it to that instead of Using trying, them as examples instead of taking a command and adding to it, I guess. This is, ex- We're this defining. is explain, yeah, We're explaining defining. What's, what it is rather than... But in a way, isn't that what we're also doing with the Lord's Supper? Jesus institutes the Lord's Supper and says, do this in remembrance of me. This is a very vague instruction, right? We would know, what does he mean? And the way we figure out what he means by that is by looking at the instructions and the example of the apostles. What they taught about the Lord's Supper and also what they practiced. Now, in both the sexual immorality one and the Lord's Supper, the historical record bears out these conclusions that we have from the text. But I tell you something, we might not get this conclusion all by ourselves if we were just reading the text about sexual immorality or about the Lord's Supper. So the historical record is very important. What they taught about sexual immorality in the early church was that you had to be married to have sex. What they taught about the Lord's Supper and what they practiced also, they practiced that on the first day of the week would be a special worship day that they would gather together and they would do these things on the first day of the week. they do the Lord's Supper, They'd have a collection, they'd pray, they'd sing, they'd have sermons, etc. It doesn't mean that they didn't necessarily gather together on other days of the week because they would. But one thing they didn't do was have the Lord's Supper on another day of the week. Although there's no verses that say, well, you can't have the Lord's Supper on Monday, you can't have it on Tuesday, you can't have it on Wednesday. Another one I thought of, while you're digesting all this stuff. Another one I thought of is just the thing about elders. We understand what church government is because of what they did and they taught. There was a group of elders that were tasked with the job of shepherding the church. And we see instructions, both Peter and and Paul give instructions about elders. Elders are always referred to in the plural. There's no verse that says you can't have just one elder. 
But we infer that from the text because it's always elders. And we also have the evidence of the way the early church operated. They had a group of elders. There's also no verses that say, okay, you can't have one person in charge of a number of different churches. But that's definitely going beyond the instruction of elders in each church, a group of elders in each church, to shepherd the flock that is under their care. In other words, your little group. We see that clearly from the text. And so there's a principle I want to mention. Let me get your answer to this question. And of course, there's the example of musical instruments, which we're not completely in agreement on. That's why I don't bring it up. We're told to sing, and we're not told to use musical instruments, and we see the practice of the early church. Oh, there's one more I'll give, and then I'll mention the principle that I want to get your response to. There's another one that I thought of, too, which is, even though now we have the direct commands about it, but you can see the evolution of the thinking, what was going on, and which is the whole bit about commanding the Gentiles to be circumcised. The first time the Apostle Paul was up in Antioch and he was disputing with those Judaizers there and he was saying, no, 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 you're wrong for requiring them to be circumcised. This was before, first of all, before any of this New Testament stuff was written, but even before Acts 15 even happened, right, where they had that little meeting in Jerusalem and they discussed the matter and pretty much settled it. But notice he was already saying, look, Scripture doesn't say anything about telling the Gentiles to be circumcised. So even though it was something that God required in the Old Testament, it's not part of the gospel, and it's wrong for us to add it to the gospel. And then finally, we have the meeting memorialized in Acts 15, and then we also have Galatians. But look at the method. At some time, read Acts 15, and look at the mode of reasoning that they did. They were not looking for command. They were not saying, well, we're not going to have circumcision because look at this command we have that says, thou shalt not circumcise the Gentiles. There was no such command. But they looked at examples, and they looked at the example of the Holy Spirit giving his approval to the gospel going to the Gentiles, and the absence of a command to circumcise them. So we're not going to add this instruction to the gospel is what they decided on. So they looked at the evidence of what was going on, what Paul was doing, what Peter was doing. You know, Peter had that whole experience, and Peter mentions that. So they draw the inference. In the absence of a specific command, they come to the conclusion that, no, no, the Holy Spirit is telling us that we don't need to command the Gentiles to be circumcised. So now this brings me to a rule that I want to lay on you and see if you think it's correct. So when you decide to do a certain thing, it excludes the other choices. It's like marriage. Before you get married, you could look at all the other people of the opposite gender that are around and you could, you know, I I could marry any one of those people. But then once you actually marry one person, now you've made your choice. You're married to that person. And that excludes all the other choices. Now you've made your choice, you've excluded all the other choices. We decide to be disciples of Jesus Christ. We're going to follow Jesus' instruction. That excludes following other instructions. Hey, this Mohammed guy's got a lot of good stuff to say. Well, we've already made our choice. 
So I said a whole bunch of stuff <laughs> and ended with this rule about once we decide on one thing, it excludes all others. Is that a sound Bible reasoning? Or if you want to take it in your own direction, take it in your own direction. I mean, I, d- I don't think I... Like, for instance, uh, I, I don't think I necessarily agree with that statement. For instance, okay. uh, did, I want to say, Paul, did he not get one of his followers circumcised? Yes. Not, not because he had to, but right. to keep the peace, I guess? Yes, he did. So, I mean, yeah, even, though, even though they circumcised. Was that before or after this? It, it, it wouldn't even matter. Actually, I believe that's Acts 16, and that's after this thing. That's a good point. There's a difference between saying, I'm going to get Timothy circumcised because what they're saying about me, I'm Paul now talking, right? What they're saying about me is I'm bringing Gentiles into the temple and defiling the temple. Mm-hmm. So I want to bring Timothy in there, so I'm going to get him circumcised. And so that's what he does. And obviously Timothy went along with it. But that's different than saying you're going to acquire the Gentiles to be circumcised. There are certain things you have to do if you're a disciple of Christ, right? You have to be baptized. If you say, I don't want to be baptized, well, then you can't be a disciple of Jesus Christ. Mm-hmm. If you decide you don't want to do any one of the instructions, you can't be a disciple. So there's a difference between saying, well, I think I should circumcise this person. You might circumcise somebody because it's uh, for health reasons. So it doesn't say that circumcision is a sin. The sin is, and this is a very important point, commanding someone to be circumcised. I can agree with that. And the thing about religion is, and this is why you have to be careful with what practices you adopt in religion. Because like I've said a number of times, whatever practices you adopt do tend to become codified. They become rules. Sometimes communicated to people as you got to obey the rule. And sometimes people take it as a rule, but it really isn't obeying the rule. It really is hitting that mark on the dartboard. So you have to be careful the practices you adopt because they're going to become requirements of your religion. And there are plenty of things we see like that. Mm -hmm. All sorts of religions have all sorts of things they require their people to do. That was somebody saying, well, I don't see the harm in doing such and such, or I think this such and such is a good idea. So you have to be really, really super careful not to add to and also not to take away. Right, this is a practical thing. And I was a little bit surprised when I first realized this from reading the book of Acts. The Apostle Paul was fine with the, the people who were Jewish and became Christians still doing their Jewish holidays. He didn't say, well, now that you're Christians, you have to throw all that out. You can't do any of that stuff. And he would himself, just like, you know, he had Timothy be circumcised. He took a vow at one point, and that was more like a, a tradition than something that was commanded in the Mosaic Law. But the point is, he said that he would be all things to all people, so he would adopt doing something for other reasons, as long as it didn't violate the instruction from God. When I first realized that, I was a little bit surprised from that. But then you bear that out in Romans 14. If you're converting somebody, you've got a new Christian who belonged to some religion where, let's say you you converted a Jewish person, and this Jewish person still wanted to honor the Sabbath. Well, it's okay if he goes, well, I'm not comfortable with 
not honoring the Sabbath. So I'm going to continue to honor the Sabbath. Then we would be wrong, right? We already did this bit. We would be wrong if we were like, we kind of like said, ah, you don't have to. So let him do his thing. Now, it's different though than saying, which some religious groups have done, right? They, they get into their head, wait a second, we have to get the Christians to honor the Sabbath. Well, no, 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 no. The Sabbath is a part of the Old Testament law. There's no instruction about honoring the Sabbath, so we don't need to require that of people. So because there's nothing about the Sabbath in the New Testament instructions, then we would be wrong to require it of people. We've made the choice to follow Jesus. This excludes any other good idea we might have. Go ahead, continue. So give me your reaction to that long-winded bit of stuff. I agree with that, I think. Um, that there is, I guess, a difference between something that's necessary and something that is done because, you know, I don't know, for whatever reason. Yeah, like, like Paul, the, there are there are some specific things that the Bible definitely commands, right, for us to do. Um, but I think a lot of things, even even within those, maybe, are vaguely defined to the point where you can complete them in different ways. Right. Like, go forth and make disciples. Does that mean actually go? have to physically go somewhere? Or does that mean throughout your life, as you're living your life, preach the gospel? You know? Some people took it one way, some people the other. I don't think either one is wrong. I think they're both doing, fulfilling that particular commandment. Um... Right, and some people may be helping making disciples and not even preaching. I mean, if yeah, somebody's I, I a really bad I preacher, maybe... I don't think it necessarily right. said preach. Right, exactly. Said, go forth and make disciples. And they may do it by being an example, or they may do it by financially helping an evangelist or helping evangelists with other things, like logistics and things like that, you know, whatever. Yeah, exactly. I think that's a good example. So go forth and preach the gospel does not mean everybody's out there preaching sermons. Mm-hmm. That would be or, anarchy. Or not everybody is a, you know, a, a, somebody who goes to Africa, a missionary. <laughs> there you go. Right. Um, you know, some people, one of my parents' favorite movies is uh, a group of missionaries that went to live in the Amazon jungle. And they, so I think it was a group of like, five couples and their kids right. they just went out to live literally in the middle of nowhere there's nothing around they had to learn how to fly a plane in order to even get there, <laughs> get there. or to get supplies <laughs> and you know I don't think that's necessarily for everyone right but no for some it, it, it certainly is. isn't some people would be terrible at that so there's the instruction in Ephesians 4 that whole bit right after Paul talks about there's one Lord one faith one baptism one God and Father and all is overall and in all but he also says but then Jesus gave various gifts to the church and the gifts are if you, if you continue to read people with different talents some people are teachers some people's job is comforting people have different functions so you do you do the function that you're gifted to do 
And everyone's not going to be a teacher. Everyone's not going to be an ear. Everyone's not going to be an eye. Some people are going to be pinky toes. Belly button. Yeah, exactly. That's a good point. But let me ask you another question. Mm-hmm. I think there are things that are specifically spelled out like that. So your example of go forth and preach the gospel is definitely made to be variously applied. But we have specific instructions about how that's variously applied. Is when God gives a general instruction, does it mean that we could do it however we want? Or does it mean that he wants us to make the effort to figure out what he wants us to do? I think definitely the second one. Right. Like, you should try to figure out what he wants you to do, but... And if there's anything important to God, the information is there. I I think if there's anything important, it'll be said specifically to do it. But not necessarily. You may need to make certain inferences about the text, like sexual immorality. There's no specific command that says, now remember now, don't have sex with anyone that's not your spouse. It never says that anywhere in the Bible. You make inferences, very strong and inescapable inferences, from people's behavior and other instructions. But there's never a verse that says, now remember, you can only have sex with your own spouse. We get that you know, from examples. Now here's the thing about the Lord's Supper, though. So Jesus gives a very vague instruction. But then the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 11 says to the church in Corinth, you know, what you're doing is not the Lord's Supper because you're not doing it right. And they're not doing it right means they weren't having communion with each other. They were having division, and their attitude wasn't right. So you've got a thing where the Apostle Paul says, there's a specific way to do this. And if you're not doing it exactly the way you should be doing it, then it's not the Lord's Supper, you know, you might as well be doing nothing. For that particular one, and it was obviously pointed out, you know, that they weren't doing it right. Um, because it was that important to the actual, the core function, the core meaning of it. Right. Um, but like, one example. Do you think that in order to be truly, we'll put that in quotes, baptized, okay, you have to have it done in an outside body of water? No. Just to be a sufficient body of water. Where do you get that? Where, do you, where are you getting that assumption? I mean, every example that we can think, uh, that I can think of, happened outside, right? None of them would have, they wouldn't have had indoor pools or anything like that. But notice the specific wording when it talks about John the Baptist baptizing in the Jordan is because there was sufficient water. Okay. And also, I'll tell you something else. What would help us there is to also look at the historical record. Are we able to infer, are we able to say that it has to be outside because we see the practice of the early church? No, they had baptistries. They had baptistries even before we had New Testament baptism. The Jews had baptistries that were interior. Yeah, once again, you have to study the history because baptism is sort of like the Lord's Supper where there was a thing that the Jewish people were doing that was now appropriated for the church. There are some Jewish groups that when they would proselytize, when they would uh, convert someone to Judaism, they would 
baptized. The Jews would do that. And they would have baptistries that were indoors. But I'll tell you something, though. That's worth considering. It's worth looking at that because you want to make sure you're doing these things right. So someone might say, hey, hey, many of these examples are outside. We don't know if the jailer was baptized, whether that was indoors or outdoors. But that's a reasonable thing to consider. So we look at the text, and we look at what we can garner from the practice. What does history say about these things? Now you're right, the history part, like you said before, takes a back seat to the text, but it's helpful to us so we can understand what did the early church do and does it appear they were doing something because the apostles were telling them to do that? But that's a good point, though. I mean, I don't see how that would be different to me because... All, all baptisms that we have an example of where it happened is outside, right? No, 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 no. They're not all outside. Like well, I said, what's the first one? Um, uh, not not one that's ambiguous, but one that specifically is not outside. Because I'm sure there are plenty of places, you know, in the New Testament where they gather together on an ambiguous day. But is there one that, you know, I, at least I couldn't find one that was specifically said on a non first day. But then again, there was only one that was definitive that said that they gathered on the first day. But once again, the historical record is helpful here. If we want to make a conclusion. What chapter is that? Where he, a jailer? Where he, yeah, yeah. What chapter is that? Is that actually 16? Is it? It might be so. Yeah, I'm thinking it's jailer that. converted. Philippian. That's, I couldn't remember the word Philippian. I just blanked on the word Philippian, right? Philippian it just says, I mean, yeah, 1633. Okay. You can't say whether it was inside or outside, although they were... Mm -hmm. If I were taking a guess, this looks like an inside thing. So, yeah, you would look at that verse, and if someone was saying, look, I have a verse that indicates that a baptism has to be outside... Then, but, but that's not even. But it's just we're just saying. But just like so these examples were all outside. So therefore, but when we're understanding, we should make it the rule that it should be outside, or you know, because that's what we—that's the example we have. That's the, that's what I'm seeing right now of meeting on the first day of the week. Yes, we have an example of saying you know when they were gathered on the first day of the week. Plus, we have the historical record. Now, the, it's an interesting thing though. But the historical record look could be wrong. They, the historical record is not the Bible. Right, the historical be record is not the Bible. And right, some conclusion you make from some specific historical instance might be incorrect. But the general practice of the church was that they would gather together on the first day of the week specifically to do the Lord's Supper. All these documents of the church fathers and stuff like that say, eh, the first day of the week. And they would say, remember... Jesus was resurrected on the first day of the week. And, um, but if it was that important, <coughs> I think in my the, mind... But see, this is the thing that I disagree with. If it was that important, God would have put a simple declarative sentence in there. No. What God wants us to do is take the trouble to 
delve into it and understand what we need to do. It's like sexual immorality. There's no verse that says, now remember, you can't have sex with anybody but your spouse. There's no verse that says that. And it's very, 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 it's probably even more important than the Lord's Supper bit. He mentions it a number of times about sexual immorality. Okay. If you're sexually immoral, you're not going to get into the kingdom of heaven, period. That's very important. But there's no verse that defines what sexual immorality is. There's no verse that says, now what I'm talking about is people have sex outside of marriage. That's what I'm talking about. There's no verse that says that anywhere in the Bible. We look at the example of various things and we make conclusions. One of the most compelling ones for me is that one in 1 Corinthians 7 verse 9 where the Apostle Paul says, look, if you can't control yourself then you should get married because it's better to be married than to burn with desire. So what is he saying? Clearly he understood that if you're not married, you're not having sex. That verse by itself, you wouldn't be able to make a strong case for. But that combined with everything else, that combined with all the rest of the stuff in the Bible, plus our understanding of the historical record, what did these church fathers write? I'm not saying we should listen to, you know, St. Augustine or Eusebius or any of these guys, but they were there a lot closer to the time of the apostles than we were. So if they're talking about the church, we can, just like we get what the Apostle Paul implies, even though he doesn't specifically say certain things, you know, but we can get what he implies from the way he behaved and the way he practiced. Well, we can also get some things that may not even be stated by what these people who were more contemporary with the Apostles say. So we don't have any support for a long time after the apostles have gone and uh, uh, hundreds and hundreds of years have gone by for anybody saying we ought to have a Lord's Supper on a different day of the week. We don't have any support for that. Just like baptism, the way they understood baptism at the time in the culture was something that you could do inside because even before the time of Jesus, there were already baptistries that were interior places. There's nothing that prevented you from doing a baptism outside, and if you got a lot of people who need to be baptized, that's the thing to do. But when they were baptizing some single individual quite often, they would do it in a baptistry before the time of Jesus, and they didn't abandon that after the time of Pentecost. The, the historical record tells us that, just like the historical record tells us that there are certain things that they did abandon that were part of the Jewish culture, like circumcision, like musical instruments. So we can study but, all these other texts. Go ahead. Give me your butt. Okay. I mean, Stick I had a couple butt. of them, but... Um, okay, give me, give me one of your butts. I'll see if what I can remember. Man, okay. A man of many butts. Okay. Um, almost all of the really, really early texts that I could find about why, uh, this is, I guess, the, the day of rest, celebration of the Lord, whatever. Yeah, it's not was, really a day changed. of rest because it's not Sabbath. Yeah, it was right. changed from the Sabbath... No, 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 no. It wasn't changed from the Sabbath to the first day. This is not a Sabbath. That's a good thing to remember. Because a lot of the anti-first day of the week arguments are anti that the first day of the week is a Sabbath. All those arguments are correct. The first day of the week is not the Christian Sabbath. The Christian Sabbath is when we get to heaven. So it's not a day of rest. It's not like the Sabbath in which you have to refrain from all work. 
it was the first day of the week was just the day that they would gather together and do certain things. Okay. So anyway, continue. Go ahead. But um, but all the ones that I read at least said that you know there's not a lot of writing from that time. So you know, I don't know. But even even there were some even up to the first century. Uh, but they said the Sunday was chosen because they wanted to differentiate themselves from the Sabbath. Yeah, from, as a matter from, of fact. You know, because yes. a lot of Jews were converting, so I think, they wanted to say I think Saint we're not the same that. thing. Okay. Yes. Not So not necessarily that... I don't find that any, inference correct. I'm just saying, if, if we're going by historical, you know, if we're, if we're giving any weight to history, well, we, to, we to we writings, should. Yeah. we should, should a bit, yeah. Um, okay, one, one example in the Bible... Romans 14.5 One person esteems one day as better than another while another esteems all days alike. Each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. Right. The one who observes the day observes it in honor of the Lord. The one who eats eats in honor of the Lord so he thanks to God. So, but basically saying to, at least from what I can read no day is more special than any other. Is that what he's saying though? I think so. What is the common? He's saying you as know, long as you're doing it for God, you know, with, with God in mind, look in, at, in honor of God. Look at the first verse. Okay. Look at Romans 14.1. Except the one whose faith is weak, without passing judgment on. What does it say in your translation? Uh, but not... Uh, not quarreling of quarrel. opinions. Okay, so... And this is the thing that we were talking about, that if somebody is coming from one of these pagan religions and their faith is still weak so they still honor that day then it doesn't matter to God if you permit them to continue to honor that day in fact it matters to God if you force them into doing what you want them to do because then you're causing the sin because it's not by faith so they need to be firmly convinced but remember the conditions of the beginning of Romans 14 is not the end result of what we're looking for. And you're not the only one to make this mistake. A lot of people make this mistake. And every single person that quotes Romans 14, 5, and 6 for this purpose are not getting Romans 14, except the one whose faith is weak. The person who you need to uh, make allowances for is the person whose faith is weak. He's not saying, therefore, we don't gather together on the first day of the week to have the Lord's Supper. He's not saying that. He's talking to all the people in Rome who are dealing with people that are coming from all sorts of religions. And how are you supposed to treat them when they become Christians? Well, you have to respect that they didn't come from the culture that you came from. And they might have a problem with certain days. They might have a problem with eating meat sacrificed to idols. They might have a problem with, you should accept that person and don't quarrel about it. But it doesn't say, but don't continue to teach them. Because remember what it says. You're supposed to get to a point where you're united in the same mind and judgment. Mm -hmm. So let's say I converted you and you were a druid. And every Thursday you would do your tree ceremony. And I'd be like, hey, you don't have to do that anymore. You're a Christian. But like, eh, I still don't feel comfortable not honoring the trees on Thursday. So I'm going to go do it. I shouldn't quarrel with you about that. I should let it go. But I should continue to instruct you because the end result we want is to be united in the same mind and judgment. And hey, it may take 20, 30, 40 years before you're able to see it maybe, but we should be working towards being united in the same mind and judgment. That's what that's all about in Romans 14. I can, I can agree with that 
for the first, looks like, first four verses, but the fifth... Pretty much the whole chapter. It's one of the main like, like themes fifth, of that whole chapter. Six, seven, eight. They they give both sides of the argument, meaning. Not so. It's not saying this. You know, it's not saying which one is wrong or weak in faith. It's just saying, look, either one of these. But that's the context. Either one of these, as right. long as you're doing it for God, is okay. But that's even the if con- you eat, even if you don't eat, right. even if you think one day is more important, even if you don't think. Either one is okay in God's eyes as long as you're doing it with him in mind, with him first, you know, first. And now continue reading. What does verse 23 say? Is it verse 23? Let me see if I I remember. But whoever has doubts is condemned if he eats, because the eating is not from faith. And whatever whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. See, you can see all the way down there in verse 23, he's still on the same thing. He's still talking about people who are weak in faith. And he's saying... Don't quarrel over the fact that they have problems with certain days of the week or they have problems with eating meat sacrificed on pile. Don't quarrel over those, but they will eventually be brought along. But you have to remember that the person has to be firmly convinced in his mind that he no longer has to worship the trees on Thursday for him to stop doing it. If he does it just because you tell him to, and you must know what you're doing because you're the teacher. If he does it just to please you, the teacher, then he's sinning and you're sinning. That's what the whole chapter is about. It's not about the Lord's Supper and it's not about the first day of the week. You know, the same guy that wrote that is the same guy that hung around in, I believe it was Troas, for seven days and then on the first day of the week so that he could gather together with the disciples on the first day of the week. Why did he wait seven days? That's an inference, but that's one of the first day of the week verses, Acts 20 and verse 7, when they got together on the first day of the week to break bread. Right. Does it say that he waited specifically? Well, he, or, or yeah, it, it says in the chapter before that he waited in Troas seven days. It doesn't say why he waited. Yeah, so so that's an inference. That he was just staying there for seven days and then his yeah. boat was taking off for right. seven days. Right, I agree. And like I said to you on Sunday, that verse by itself is not particularly compelling to me. But that combined with everything else, because it specifically calls out the first day of the week on the day that they gathered to break bread. When we got together on the first day of the week to break bread, and then when the Apostle Paul is giving an instruction completely unrelated to the Lord's Supper, but when he says to them about the collection, he says, on the first day of every week, collect this money up together so that when I come, you don't have to make a special collection. Mm-hmm. It's but, like but that, you can infer that, that they were saying, all together on the first day of every week. They could be, but they might not be. Well, you could do that in your house, too. You know? You'd get so the I mean, whole rest of the church. Well, part of that would it not together. be... At least, I think so. Uh, Jews can't handle money on the Sabbath, right? So, I mean, the first opportunity after that, that they would be able to... So, were they Jews in Corinth, or were they... Or was well, but maybe that's, when they got, maybe that's when they got paid. That's a good I don't point. know. But there's nothing in the scripture that supports that inference. Just like there's nothing in the scripture that applies Romans 14 to say, therefore, we can have the Lord's Supper any day of the week. Even though some people might want to play it that way, there is nothing to support that inference. So this is the, but this is the tricky part. It requires you to make certain inferences, but it's really tricky making the right inferences. And the way that you make the right inferences is you have to read the whole Bible. And when you're looking at, well, what inference can I make? 
then you have to consider the entire rest of the Bible to say, well, what inference does the entire rest of the text support and what inference does it not support? And you have to also consider, this is a secondary thing, but you do have to consider the historical record. That's an important part of it. Okay, for, for Romans 14, 8. If we live, we live to the Lord. If we die, we die to the Lord. Right. So then, whether we live or whether we die, we're the Lord's. Right. Which one of those is the option of weak faith? He's explaining what he said in the previous things. Whatever you do, you're doing it to the Lord. So if you're honoring a certain my, day, you're honoring point. the Lord. If you're not honoring a certain day, you're honoring the Lord because you believe that's what you have to do. You may believe incorrectly that's what you have to do. You, yes, but, but But I think he's saying... We shouldn't quarrel. I shouldn't quarrel with you about that if you're a newbie and you still want to honor something. Hey, it might not even be a religious thing. It might just be something in your culture. It's like we have all sorts of people that honor Christmas Day. Well, it's got nothing to do with... Christianity. Christmas Day has got nothing to do with Christianity. It's more a secular holiday. Mm-hmm. But I shouldn't give people a hard time. I shouldn't give my little sister a hard time when she wants to cook a really nice dinner on Christmas Day and invite me over to eat. I'm like, hey, that's fine. And not argue with her about it. What I really need to do is acquaint her with the principles of the gospel. And that'll all fall into place. But don't fall are you saying over that, these things. Are you saying that 20, 30, 40 back. years down the line, she should stop? No, not necessarily. And she may never get there, but she... Well, I mean, but, I'm, are you saying that ideally, a, a yes, true Christian ideally, eventually stops. No, 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 no. I wouldn't even say it that way. I would say this. Because I know that, as a matter of fact, I even sometimes go out of my way to not respect Christmas, to make a point to all my relatives. Mm-hmm. But I don't... Uh, to, to teach a lesson. But if somebody invites me over for Christmas dinner, I don't say, ah, oh, I can't go there because... It's a pagan holiday, and I'm a Christian. No, I don't do that. And there are people in my family I may never convert. So when I'm 80 years old, I may still be going to Christmas dinner at my little brother's house, maybe. Mm-hmm. There's no sin if I go. No sin if I don't go. There may be a sin if I grab my, my little brother by the collar and say, Listen, bub, you got to stop terrible sin you're doing here by celebrating Christmas and you gotta stop doing that and he goes oh I don't know if it's right but if you feel so strongly about it I'm gonna do it and if he doesn't do it because oh I don't know if it's right then he's sinning and I'm sinning for making him do it and that's what Romans 14 is all the whole chapter is all about pretty much the whole chapter but that's what it's all about it's all about how you deal with people whose faith is weak and he also touches on this in 1 Corinthians chapter 10 and the chapters previous about that too you put them all together and you understand what he's saying but he's the same one that is indicating that there's certain things you do on the first day of the week so he's not I, I don't think he's saying I don't see that as saying these are the things you do on the first no, day of the week I think he's saying it was the first day of the week and we happened to do this incidentally things. it was the first day of the week yeah, yeah no I mean if Here's another point that I want to make. When I was talking about a street preacher, he made this point to me one time, which is, God knows how we're going to take this. And God knows what he's doing. God knew what he's doing in putting all this text together. And this text is what describes... Well, describes Jesus to us. Describes God to us. Jesus is the Word. Everything is there for a reason. 
We might not get what the reason is. Like when you read about Samson tying two wolves together, having them burn down a orchard or something like that. Uh, was it an orchard or a vineyard or something like that? Or was it grain? Uh, I think it was grain, grain. warehouses. When Samson did that, we might scratch our heads and say, you know, I haven't got a clue why he's telling me this. But there's a reason. Because the Apostle Paul said in, I think it's in the very next chapter of Romans, right? Is it Romans 15 verse 4? And everything that was written was written for our learning. Mm -hmm. So the that he specifically says when they gather together to break bread on the first day of the week there's a reason why that's there it's not accidental it's not coincidental the wording that he says in 1 Corinthians 16 verse 2 that is on the first day of every week is not a coincidence it's not accidental it was put there by God so we can understand who Jesus is so it's not accidental the fact that the early church gathered together on the first day of the week to have the Lord's Supper is because the apostles told them to do it. It's not by accident. And the fact that the early church didn't have musical instruments is because the apostles told them to do it, not by accident. And we see that because of the habit. And sometimes you have to be like a, a judge or an FBI investigator. There's a reason. It's not accidental. There's a reason why we see the first day of the week pointed out for certain things to go on and that's what they did and you know something it doesn't even mean that the first day of the week the first day of the week was never like the Sabbath the Sabbath was a special day there's things you couldn't do on the Sabbath the whole day basically it's just that on the first day of the week they would gather together they'd have the Lord's Supper they'd have a collection they'd sing they'd pray they'd read scripture this was what their worship service was like on the first day of the week it was certainly okay for them to gather together on other days of the week and do some of these other things, but we see the practice of the early church was the only time they did the Lord's Supper was on the first day of the week. And so we, we, take, that that, one, we take that whole... We only have that shown one time in the Bible. I mean, so that's not exactly a pattern, that's just... It's but then we happen. do have, and like I said to you before, I always take them with a grain of salt. But we do have the church records and the writing of all these church fathers. Eusebius, who was like, what, like 200-something to 300 A.D., made a point of, yeah, the church got together on the first day of the week to have the Lord's Supper. That's Eusebius writing just after the apostles. It wasn't accidental. We do have to understand the facts outside of what the Bible says, because the Bible doesn't exist in a vacuum. How do we know that the genealogies that were pointing to Jesus are accurate? Somebody could have wrote them in at any time. We have to rely on the external evidence that this was something that existed for at least... 1600 years before the time of Jesus, the writing down of these genealogies and that they continue to exist during that time from external sources, Jewish sources, but still from external sources. And we say, oh yeah, because we don't know, we've got the text today. Someone could have wrote this in a thousand years ago. We have no way of knowing. We have to look at the external evidences. We have to look at the historical record to see that these genealogies were there way back when. It says that David wrote 
many of the songs, right? Most of the songs were David. Well, once again, somebody could have a thousand years ago wrote a bunch of little ditties and put them in and say, these are the psalms that David wrote. You and I wouldn't know, mm -hmm. but we have the historical record. David was the second king of Israel. If he didn't write that thing, then we would know about it. Just like if someone said, hey, you know, George Washington, when he was a kid, he chopped down a cherry tree. And his, his father, when he asked him about it, he said, I cannot tell a lie, I did it. We know that story is not true. Not because we have any specific knowledge, but because of the historical record. People who have studied it say, yeah, that story is apocryphal because of whatever reasons they have. But they pretty much universally conclude that it, it didn't really happen. It was just a fable about George Washington. The Bible doesn't exist in a vacuum. It's the inerrant word of God, so we can't take something from historical record or something from, from some external thing and say, this contradicts the Bible, so what do we do when we write the Bible? I'll give you an example. I was reading a thing today about some of these um, uh, Quran scholars want to say that Ishmael really was the son that Abraham went to sacrifice. Well, that flatly contradicts the text. So they say, so the Bible is wrong. And this is a corrupt text that's been handled by so many people for 3,000 years. And how can you trust it? Well, you have good reason to trust it for a number of reasons we don't have to go into here. But you see, when someone brings something to you from the outside and says, Ishmael was really the one that Abraham went to sacrifice, you have to say... Uh-uh. The Bible says it was Isaac. You even have in wherever, whatever chapter that is, Genesis 19 or wherever it is, where, is it 19 or is it 17? I don't know, but it's after 15. Where God, when Abraham's 99 years old, renews his promise to him, and, and, uh, and Abraham says, I already got a kid. I got Ishmael here. Can't he be the son of promise? And God says, uh-uh, uh-uh. God says, No. I made a specific choice that excludes all other choices. You're going to have a son. He's the one that's going to be the son of promise. Right? I'm not leaving the option to do other things. The choice has been made. The deal has gone down. That's also an example of the idea that one choice excludes all other choices. God could have said, oh yeah, it doesn't really matter. One kid's as good as another. Okay, Ishmael is a child of promise. But that's... That's God. That's I know, that's God. It's not a great example, totally but it does different. show you that God is a God of specifics. God never says to people, you're, you're smart people, you do what you think is best. That's never the message of the Bible. You know what you're doing, you just do what you think is best. As a matter of fact, what you recently went through... Kind of what Israel does. Yeah, exactly, and they were wrong. And God knew that they would make that mistake. But that, and that's what the book of Judges was all about. It's a comedy of errors, that entire book. Well, the entire Old Testament is pretty much a comedy of errors, but... In those days, Israel had no king, so people did what was right in their own minds. Which did not work well for them, that was not good. Now we can properly apply that to say, okay, so now we're this little group. Are we going to do what's right in our own minds, or are we going to be very, very careful to do our very best to extract every little bit of information we can from this text, I'm pointing at the Bible, to understand what it says, and use whatever sources might be helpful we see reference to other sources in mm -hmm. the Bible. The Apostle Paul in Acts 17 references some secular poetry. In Kings, 
and Chronicles, doesn't it say over and over again, hey, and all the other things this king did, are they not written in the Chronicles of the Kings of Israel? So he's saying, hey, if you want to know what I haven't written here, you can read that in the secular writing. So we have examples of referencing other writings, but we know that we have to handle it properly. We know that this has to be the Word of God, and so we put it in a certain place that these other writings don't. I think it would be helpful to underscore here that in Scripture, everything is there for a reason. For whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction, that through endurance and through the encouragement of the Scriptures, we might have hope. That's Romans chapter 15, verse 4. In other words, God is quite deliberate, and he knows exactly what we might do with the text. And there is also nuance to the teaching. In Acts 15, we have Paul and Barnabas go to this big meeting in Jerusalem that underscores that adding to the gospel, the requirement that Gentiles be circumcised, is dead wrong. And then hot on the heels of that, in Acts 16, we are told of the Apostle Paul having Timothy circumcised. This is no accident. We are being challenged to think hard about what we are being taught. I'm not going to go into that now, but I point this out here to help indicate that God wants us to dive in and immerse ourselves in the text in order to fully understand. This is what he expects from us. Very little of the Bible is in the form of simple commands, and God has a reason for designing his word this way. Why did Jesus speak in parables? In Matthew chapter 13, after Jesus tells a crowd a puzzling parable, his disciples asked him, Why? Then disciples came and said to him, Why do you speak to them in parables? And he answered them, To you it has been given to know the secrets of the kingdom of heaven, but to them it has not been given. For to the one who has, more will be given, and he will have an abundance. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. This is why I speak to them in parables, because seeing they do not see, and hearing they do not hear, nor do they understand. Indeed, in their case, the prophecy of Isaiah is fulfilled that says, you will indeed hear, but never understand, and you will indeed see, but never perceive. For this people's heart has grown dull, and with their ears they can barely hear, and their eyes they have closed, lest they should see with their eyes, and hear with their ears, and understand with their heart, and turn, and I would heal them. But blessed are your eyes, for they see and your ears, for they hear. For truly I say to you, many prophets and righteous people long to see what you see and did not see it, and to hear what you hear and did not hear it. That's Matthew chapter 13, verses 10 through 17. Jesus then explains the parable to his disciples. The message is clear. God expects us not to just casually listen to his word, 
but earnestly pursue an understanding of his will for us, and he structures his instruction in sometimes cryptic ways, such as parables, to hide the meaning from the casual listener, to hide the meaning from the one whose heart is not in it. There were plenty of people in that crowd who heard the parable, didn't get it, but didn't pursue the matter any further like his disciples did. And you see from the passage what God thinks of that approach. This is why it is incorrect to say that if something is important to God, he will state it simply. I can think of a number of verses that support what I'm saying here, but we are running out of time for this week. Let me know if you want to hear more on this. Let me know if you want to see a list of those verses, or if you think I've done quite enough on this topic, let me know what you would like to hear something about. So if you have any questions, comments, or concerns, or even if you have any helpful suggestions, please feel free to email me at james at org. That's all for now. Goodbye, and God bless. The law of the Lord is perfect, converting the soul. The judgments of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, yea, than much fine gold.